So for the, the second session um, of our day today is with Nicola. You'll see Nicola has moved to um, my office upstairs in the house um, and she'll be doing her paper from there. After Nicola's paper, we'll ask all of those who are in the room who've had a chapter in the book to come in and, and just to have a, a, a chat really about um, the issues that have come up through the book about social mobility and so on and so, so forth. But um, Nicola, over to you now. Um, I would just like to thank the organisers and to thank uh, Margaret and Terence Cronshaw for that fantastic introduction. They really, it's humbling when they've presented my uh, achievements and such. Um, I'm really humbled by um, that introduction. Uh, thank you very much, Goats. So it really is. Um, so going from being upstaged by a goat to feeding the horses, which has been my take on the modern slavery storyline. And what I, um, so, so just sort of um, a spoiler, just in case, there'll be some people on um, this call for whom this is completely new analysis. There are some people for whom uh, I did present my early think, thinking on this paper in the Saturday group. It was really helpful in terms of sharpening up some of the terminology. There is both a blog and a podcast out there. I'll put the links in um, the chat. Um, and also it's been taken up with some of the media coverage for the conference. So when um, Charlotte Higgins wrote her lovely introduction the other day, um, she focused on the neoliberal necropolitics angle. And when I've been doing some media work this week, people do seem to find it funny that it's the sort of most... Um, the most uh, obscure or kind of difficult kind of corner of social theory. So um, if you are the kind of person that upon encountering concepts, um, particularly things which are slightly more philosophical, I, I will recommend the, the podcast and the blog as a start, some of the journalism. And then obviously you've all got in front of you a month before publication date, the excellent um, flapjacks and feudalism that says Nicholas copy at the top, social mobility in class and the arches. And actually this was a little bit of a late entry to be honest. Thank you everybody, you can wave your books. Everybody show us your books. Um, it was a bit of a late entry because we, this book, as you will know, if you look at the, um, if you look at the, the um, contents, some of the, in fact, I was reflecting on, so Claire Asprey's housing papers from the British Library, some of them are from Sheffield, some of them from Reading. So it does span everyone that's done political economy work or economy work applied to the village over um, the, the last few years. And I've got to tell you everybody, I mean, I know that we're all, this is all a bit, Saturday group is marvelous, isn't everything marvelous, aren't goats marvelous? But I'm really proud of this book. I think it's really important. And I think it really says something. And I think also it sort of represents us hitting our stride in terms of, um, you know, the pieces are very disparate, they're different, they bring different sort of analyses. And, um, but that is good, as we say, always say, you know, there's a real diversity of voices in here and different topics. And there's absolutely nothing about, um, you know, and back to what Karen was saying, you know, there's no, um, there's no line in academic archers. There's no, not even that we all hate Shula. I mean, there, some people love Shula. The point is, is that, um, you know, it really shows a, a sort of disparate set of voices, but all concerned with say, the political economy that underpins life in Ambridge, from housing to work. And we realised uh, quite late in the editing process that 
we had the, the modern slavery storyline um, not covered, which would have been just an egregious omission, given that we've struggled through it for, you know, three or four years. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just read a bit from the chapter. Um, and then, as I say, we'll ask any authors who want to speak about their themes for a bit. And then that will consider the book officially launched. You've got one in your delegate boxes, but um, you can't buy it online anywhere else until the 16th of March. Dark Jackanory with Nicola Hedlam. Thank you, Cara Courage from downstairs. Right. Feeding the Horses, Modern Slavery, the Dark Side of Construction, Hidden in Plain Sight in Ambridge. The chapter explores, oh, this is page 57 in your textbooks if you want to read along, everybody. I was looking forward to saying that, I haven't said that for a long time. The chapter explores how the recent storyline about modern slavery has landed in Ambridge, commending the writers and producers for the job they've done in engaging NGOs and pressure groups active in this area. It situates the plight of the horses as hidden in plain sight and probes the dark side of this important social issue in the context of how far the systematic exploitation of vulnerable people provides a ground floor within a profoundly unequal economy. Modern slavery speaks of a wider form of neoliberal necropolitics in which logics of accumulation and hierarchies are played out on the bodies of workers. In this form of political economy, social and emotional vulnerability and economic precarity combine together, trapping those unable to escape exploitation. It explores the policy context for the Modern Slavery Act and an assessment of how many people are enslaved in the UK. I also make the link from the extreme nature of modern slavery and connections with extractive and abusive employment situations throughout the economy. While modern slavery is an extreme form of precarity, where people are controlled and forced to work, scholarship on precarity as a phenomenon shows us it's a spectrum disorder, where economic abandonment pushes people away from a livable life. And essentially, if there's anything that I would like you to remember from this talk, it is that economic abandon, so let's go start again, precarity, as in being economically precarious, a situation in which up to 20% of the British population exists at any one time. And one of the uh, kind of, you know, benchmarks is, could you survive if you weren't paid for three months? I mean, how many households could survive without the paycheck for three whole months? Could you survive if you weren't paid for one month? How long would you survive, you know, before, you start to need somebody to intervene, Ambridge Ferry or otherwise. So precarity then is a spectrum disorder where economic abandonment pushes people away from a livable life. Now, the more I got into all of this, and, and I mean, you're gonna think I'm completely bonkers. Or you know I am. Um, I've been reading more and more philosophy on the notion of life, of bare life, of whatever life. Because also, I think that there's been um, 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 there's been a sort of moving away from a kind of um, a rights-based discourse around people have a right to work, a right to housing, and a right to I mean I'm not going to say right to life because that's got a specific um, 
you know, pre-birth context. And I'm not interested in when life starts. I'm interested in how some people are grievable and some aren't. So Judith Butler, the amazing theorist in her book, um, The Theory of Nonviolence, which actually I saw her deliver some of the lectures for in San Fran, which Cora reminds me was five or six years ago. You can look at that in the arches, right? So the notion of grievability. In Bridge Farm, their eldest son died. And as a result, we've got echoes for 30 years of that kind of trauma delayed and deferred and how far it's messed them all up, essentially. The loss of their kind of golden boy, their kind of heir, can be seen all the time in Tom and Helen and Pat and Tony, right? So Tom, Archer, not Tom, John Archer, sorry, got confused. And, and, and of course, the lovely Johnny appearing. John Archer was grievable. He had status. He had, he had you know, a kind of, um, you know, life mapped out. If you compare that with Blake, Kenzie and Jordan, these boys are not grievable in the same way. They don't have the notion of their precarity. They're not being ripped out of the bosom of, fam of a family and treated terribly. You know, I think there's a real thing when, when once you get into talk, the talking about modern slavery is that it isn't like, you know, they just walked out of the front door of a fabulous loving home one day and were like, boom, I want to be a slave. There was an awful lot of junction points and jumping off points where different things could have happened to them that would have made them less vulnerable. And, you know, to be fair, that could have been one good interaction with a support worker or one housing officer that's, you know, the point is, is that, for, for people that are more precarious, um, the snakes and ladders board of life has got a lot more snakes than ladders in it. So we had a bit of a, you know, a bit of a storm in a storm in the Facebook group around people asking, well, you know, he did he did feed and feed and house them. You know, maybe there's there is some kind of monetary kind of, you know, maybe if we calculated that, then that would have been kind of an equivalent thing. And they and the, and I have to say that I've got a lot of kind of time for um, the writers have met, have really muddied the waters on this story, right? They haven't made it clear exactly, um, you know, what exchange relationship went on, you know, and because Philip believes that anything that he's done wrong is better than how they would have fared on the streets, that they've deliberately led us to really question what are the moral edges of who is grievable and who isn't why do we allow some people to really struggle and others we we you know cos it and put a shot put put um um a blanket around uh, me metaphorically and again uh, those of you who've seen me talk before i've done you know the, the work that i've done on the networks of the village and the ways in which the the ways in which the aldridges and the archers are infinitely connected into the kind of web of uh, of entitlement and horrors but you know well, that's a different paper for another day um the point is is that when networks fail that's when you start to have people that have got a very long way to fall and on the wrong day you know philip pulling up in his car with a happy meal and you know some some nice words as gavin said on thursday night it makes you think how little you have to do for somebody who really is extremely you know somebody who is rough sleeping is at risk I mean not only are they 
you know, likely to have a, a lifespan of about 35, they are at risk of every kind of exploitation. And they're already, um, you know, presumably by the time you're starting to house people who've been rough sleeping for any length of time, you're dealing with drug and alcohol, sex work, sexual trauma, you know, and as Karen said, identity is intersectionally constructed and more or less for Blake, Kenzie and Jordan, they've got intersections there compounded of disadvantage. So we know that they, if they're not um, learning disabled, they certainly, um, you know, maybe they don't, maybe they don't have sort of literacy. They weren't, a, they weren't able to put their life experience into context and think, you know, think of the difference between Linda Snell, if, the direction of a road doesn't quite meet her needs she's got all that cultural capital to deploy in getting what she wants whereas those lads were grateful to philip in some on some level i mean i do have some slides for this talk but i didn't think i would use them because we'll be slided out but you know the relationship between the ma the master slave dialectic is right at the core of philosophy and the and it's been kind of a question from you know as, long, as soon as we're trying to work out what are the conditions and the rights that one has as a member of a society, then you start to work out who is beyond that notion of care. And, and the, I had a picture of a teddy bear with a heart saying, you know, the master-slave dialectic is not, an uns, not a simple thing because, the, the, every, you know, from, from Hegel onwards, the reciprocity between power and authority and those who wield it and those who are subject to it is has been a question, you know, a very vexed question. I'm seeing Mia stroking her head, so I'll get on and read some more things. So in the chapter, which is to say you can um you can explore. I I started to read, so I, I commend to you the work of Akilim Mbebe, the um, post-colonial theorist. He's written a brilliant uh, blog about the pandemic, which I really recommend, which is called The Right to Breathe. And again, just as I was starting to think about a rights-based discourse, you know, the right he has applied it to the ways in which the pandemic has been resolved or whatever. Um, and as I said, that's very easily, I'll send you the link, it's very easily Googleable. So Mbebe is a good place to start. But I'll, I'll just read this. This is um, section five, page 66 in your books, everybody. <laughs> Modern slavery is an extreme form of precarity where people are controlled and forced to work. A scholarship on precarity shows us a spectrum disorder where economic abandonment pushes people away from a livable life. Remember that line? That's the line I want you to remember. As we reach for descriptors on intensified social marginalization, the concept of precarity has come to name the politically induced condition in which certain populations suffer from failing social and economic networks, becoming differentially exposed to injury, violence and death. And that's from Judith Butler. Precarity has its roots in good old fashioned economic exploitation. How far are Fagan's pickpockets different from Blake, Kenzie and Jordan? and is further weaponized by the prevailing necropolitics of late capitalism. And if I was writing this now, in the pandemic, this is accelerated even further, where some populations are made more grievable than others. Life, then, is not valued for itself within the global circuits of exchange or stretched supply chains, sorry, or stretched supply chains of the present moment. 
there is little equivalence between the lives of the consumers, voters and taxpayers within established democracies and the others, more marginal souls, economic migrants, the trafficked, the unfree, sweatshop workers, the precariously housed and those wholly reliant on others. Within contemporary debates, the nature of bare life, so life without any of the accoutrement of consumption, voting, taxpaying, all that kind of stuff, and the cultural politics of disposability. At times, this logic produces apathy toward the suffering of others, as if they somehow deserve it, and dislodges responsibilities to care from broader social, political and economic institutions. In others, it produces forms of liberal empathy in which those with wealth and privilege engage in forms of humanitarianism. Examining the way precarity is cre created and sustained and how it is lived doesn't mean that you look for what's exceptional on the margin, but you have to understand how those who are thrown into precarious circumstances might find ways to live otherwise. And I go on, Henry Giroux, Eugene Thacker, gosh, Eugene Thacker's a fabulously depressing read. I'm not sure I would recommend it at the moment. What I would like to discuss just before, where are we for time? I've been going for like half a week, fine. Okay, I'm winding up. Table 4.1, 69 in your books. Gosh, this is so fun to be able to say this. Now, again, I want to address this issue of how far we all, the, the, the horses storyline has been to appall us about the nature of modern slavery, that people could be so dehumanized, traded, you know, and exchanged. But what I'm trying to do in this table, and I would like um, some discussion around, is that, okay, let's look then at other forms of low pay housing and social standing in Ambridge, right? We start off with the horses. Are they paid the minimum wage? They are not. Is their housing and shelter tied or contingent on their work? Well, yes. What do you mean you need, a, you need an update for Rex? He's bloody well there. Turn the page. Ha ha. Sorry. <laughs> the type of employment and then the esteem, and this is the fascinating one, because again, remember the, the Bourgeon notion of economic capital is uh, underpins kind of what one can expect out of life. But the, the interrelationship between economic, social and cultural capital give you the, the example, um, the way that those things combine, lock in advantage or disadvantage. So, so we, whilst we can see the horses are, in the worst of positions in terms of their minimum wage, their housing, their employment and their esteem because they're abused and threatened with violence. Let us read down the worked examples, the home farm fruit pickers. So um, arguably we know that they were treated pretty well and given barbecues, etc., and they were contracted for summer harvest. The worst thing that happened was some casual racism and some resentment. The work is physically demanding and the conditions weren't exactly snazzy, but we were felt that they were paid a premium by the Aldridges to do that piece of work when it needed doing. William, when he was the gamekeeper, we assume his contract with Borchester Land did pay him the minimum wage, but I would be surprised if it was much more because he had a tied cottage with the, ten with the tenancy. 
So tied housing, I mean, we've all, we all know the story of clergy and others who have tied housing, but very low wages. You know, you've got, you live at the old vicarage, but you're struggling to pay the electricity bill. Um, and that was stable and long-term employment. But obviously at the point at which he was no longer employed, he lost his house. I mean, that was part of why the Grundys closed ranks around him being more or less, you know, homicidal, kill me. Now, this is the key, you see. As the gamekeeper in a rural economy, you are a highly respected ingredient of the rural land management economy, right? That is, that's the esteem. Same as clergy, you know, they are viewed as, well, <laughs> arguably, they are viewed as a high status um, profession. So that the difference between William the gamekeeper in his tied housing and the fruit pickers in in accommodation on site is really only how far we respect the labor of fruit picking or of gamekeeping. Arguably fruit picking is even more integral to the, to the rural land management, but let's not even go there. I was being chided in the chat, Root Rex drives an Uber style minicab. They've never called it Uber, but some of you were having to pay excess last night when you're getting back from the pub, I heard, you know, after all that so you know poor rex having to mop out the back of his uber uber as we all know is piecework so you get paid for every route that you take that you drop people on and there are quite high standards around your car needs to be in xyz condition it needs to be you know the back needs to be carpeted and all that malarkey has to be clean and you need and a lot of Uber drivers are in a contractual tied relationship with Uber for buying their cars. So I don't know if you've ever seen it comes up on the app. X Uber X. Now, if you drive a clapped out Ford Cortina, you're quite easily able to get finance through Uber. One of Uber's main jobs is as vehicle finance um, houses. They don't have famously, they don't have their own fleet, but you can get a low interest loan to buy a Mercedes or whatever to get that premium. And this is the principle, and this is the kind of core of what we have known, well, what has become to be known, certainly in pre-pandemic times, as the gig economy, because obviously the idea that, you know, like if you work in opera, like Bill and Sarah, you know, you, if you're making decisions about having a violinist, that person needs to be absolutely at the top of their game. They might get quite a lot for one assignment, but they have to be kind of fit and ready to go with repertoire and kit and travel and transport and go now. And, you know, supporting that life is extremely hard. So you're only paid for the gig. That's why they call it the gig economy. Now, Rex is pretty ashamed of this. He's, he's quite ashamed of his portfolio career because he can't sustain himself through farming. So he is quite, I mean, he gets, gets out and does it, but he's certainly, I mean, there was that certainly weird bit, wasn't there, where he suddenly got very, um, got very angry about, the archers are going to inherit the earth and I'm not. And the bottom line is most of the younger people in Ambridge are unable to secure their housing through their employment. And without the Ambridge Ferry and Claire Asprey's brilliant housing analysis, you know, that's, um, that's not something that's incredibly sustainable. The last example that we've got is Emma at the Turkey factory. She'd be getting the minimum wage, but not much more. But of course the Turkey factory was only was her third job at the time and she couldn't doing three jobs cover the housing costs that would have been reasonable for a family of the size that she had and again that was a source of shame that she needed to supplement her income and the actual labor itself was unpleasant cold and nasty so 
I put it to you that it isn't that the horses are in a horrific, exploited corner of the economy, but everybody else is fine. It's quite the contrary. The spectrum disorder point is that insofar as we have discourses around housing and labour, which do not foreground rights, then the pool of those who are precarious will continue to grow and arguably the net that supports and sustains a livable life, a grievable life, a meaningful life weakens. Thank you. Thank you, Nicola. There is some really, really rich commentary in the chat here um, at all sorts of different levels. It's really hard to um, to summarise, but um, there were some people, I think, in particular that had some really interesting things to say. So, um, Kiki O'Neill, I wonder, would you be happy, would you be okay to unmute yourself and talk some, a little bit about what you said from your experience as a practitioner? Uh, yes, thanks, Cara. Uh, I've been really uh, struck by the modern slavery story, and I see somebody else has posted that it's it's really been of interest nationally because it affects white British people. But I, I'm very interested in general in the concept of othering people, uh, not just to do with slavery, but to do with how we conduct our lives. And working on the margins, uh, as I do, I work in forensic psychiatry, so people I work with have committed uh, fairly serious offences and have very serious illnesses, but they're multiply disadvantaged. And I can't think of any one of uh, perhaps two of my patients in the last 17 years who would not have been vulnerable to being picked up by a, a, an apparently benevolent uh, employer because they're so desperately uh, precarious in, in their lives. And also sometimes because of their illness and substance misuse issues, their judgment will be impaired at times. So they will trust people who are manifestly not trustworthy and they're able to reflect on that when they get well. But it, it does, I think, I've reflected on this a lot over the decades. Um, I do think that it all starts when we can other another human being and as soon as we do that when they're not like us somehow their their currency is is less important and i think it's a very dangerous phenomenon just my view <laughs> thank you that's that, that's really helpful so um i don't know if people want to come in or if we want to just have a look as i say this is the um I mean, that, that is kind of the distinction that Judith Butler about the grievable, non-grievable. But what I found once you start to list out the non-grievable, it's so long, right? There's so many ways that you can become ungrievable. There's so many ways that you can not matter. And, and again, these are hard, hard things to, 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 to kind of tease the kind of moral position on. Because as I say, the tentacles of precarity reach into the hearts and the homes and the jobs of so many people. And the pandemic has really only served to accelerate those trends. So in my day job, I'm working on 
how far the economy is looking K-shaped. So, you know, most of the stimulus measures have been in the realm of capital. And then the real economy itself, there's far more, there's going to be far more precarity. The spectrum disorder is going to have more people more vulnerable in the recovery period. Some people will never recover. And that's true of any um, of, of any uh, any crisis whatsoever. It ends up um, hit. So the virus hits at the point of multiple intersectional inequalities and does its work there. So, you know, it is no surprise that it's differentially, spatially, economically, culturally, socially um, derived. And so the, the differential um, effect on different communities. Um, and it is because we have stretched those hierarchies to breaking point that are, that's because our, um, our society's kind of love for inequality and our seeming inability to provide the basics for everybody literally has made us vulnerable to death. Can I, um, um, Marilyn Mornington has also spoken about this in the chat as well. So Marilyn also, if you're, if you're happy to, could you unmute yourself and, and say a little bit about your working experience of this situation at the moment? <clears throat> I'll unmute myself because I've still got my rollers in. You can't see me till this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> yeah, um, yes. I mean, I've been 45 years a judge and, well, 30 years a judge, 45 years a family lawyer. And I'm still sitting because um, we are so inundated uh, two or three days a week. And in my entire experience, and basically I've specialised my whole life in national and international domestic violence. I have never seen anything like it. The number of cases that we have and the sheer severity of them and, and the horror of the level of violence that uh, women are experiencing. And it, it has so massively increased in, in lockdown. And again, I've, I've sort of pointed out that all my career, right until the current day, I am so appalled that so many and I'm using carefully the word professionals, um, expect in particular working class women or women from certain communities to accept horrendous behavior and have these men in their lives, <clears throat> whether it's for contact for the children, whatever, and to continue to be abused both physically and emotionally in a way that they would never ever expect middle-class women or their own families to expect and that continues to the current day that attitude that well it's um it's what happens in these communities you know it's what they've always done um you know I, I remember a very long time ago a very nice elderly judge saying to me Marilyn I don't know why you bother with this business you know these women only say they've been abused to get the house and you know that's just the way these people live now he spoke it openly with nobody criticizing him but unspokenly it's still continuing to this day well i mean to be honest though they, they shouldn't have vaginas it's that's that's their first mistake i mean ridiculous they deserve what they get you know if they if they actually have lady parts then you know sorry i'm joking obviously i take the point and 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 i feel there is a connection, though, to the political economy of the funding of services. So one of the things that I've always 
you you know had in my head is if public services are only for the poor then they become poor public services yeah. and i feel that the covid crisis is only the c in the abc austerity brexit covid and if and you're absolutely right like it's like the the sort of test is for all of us um in in whatever sort of public service we we role we are is the test of exactly would you advise your sister your friend to use this service to get where they need to get and the answer in too many cases is oh no 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 the service is designed for other you know and the assumption and you're absolutely right the the assumptions that underpin what one is supposed to tolerate and what one is supposed to accept is are um again and misogyny racism all the intersectional kind of boogeymen pile on top of people at the worst times in their lives. And I know that family, family court is, is, is where a lot of that happens. Thank you very much for your And just to finish it, point. the idea that, that, that the courts, you keep on seeing in the press, that the courts are in decline because of COVID is an absolute lie. The courts have been deprived of funding. Absolutely. 30% a year cuts for 10 years. That's why we're falling to pieces, as so many other public services are. End of rant. Back to the fun. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, I do feel like I'm sort of, as I say, I've been banished to Cara's office. I've suddenly got into this ridiculously hardcore stuff, and it's very long way from the goats. So I'm sorry to sort of... Um, it's, it is it's basically my um this is my my dark kind of you know i've i've the necropolitical framework there's no laughs in it it's bleak as hell but i just think if you don't have a, a way to frame that inequality is played out on the body and the consequence is death then you can't understand you know you can be sort of neoliberal you can be um a kind of business as usual um political economy sort of small c conservative without having the death cult overtones that we've seen in the pandemic it's possible right but when you combine neoliberalization as a set of processes and a necropolitical attitude under which you've already written off a lot of people as not mattering you are in a mess because you're it's not all souls are, are valued. It is, you're in a transactional in relationship where some lives are not valuable. I, and, you know, and again, I'm, I'm kind of back, I'm going to back out of all the philosophy guys. It really is too much for Saturday morning. So the point is that the Archers has been incredibly brave, I think, in doing this because, you know, who wants to think about extreme precarity as part of their kind of entertainment i mean those of us who've looked into the heart of forms of exploitation and precarity um you know that that you you're wounded and forever changed by that experience talk about a community of practice if you take your life seriously as somebody that needs to to understand and do no harm and just improve things a tiny bit on your way through this world whether that's faith-based or not but if you want to be a good person you cannot ignore that this is the foundation of our prosperity like how how can you ignore that and all this stuff about the village and and how guilty they all feel you know 
how, you know, Philip went around in a Father Christmas jumper offering mates rates to everybody and everybody felt they were getting a bit of a deal and a bit of a bargain. They didn't ask if he paid minimum wage. They didn't check. And what we all, and again, this isn't about Philip. As I say, it's much more about the wider structural point. But to bring it to us in a way that we can understand it and then act on it, it's a really important thing. And as, as you all know, we have Hope for Justice as our charity this year and a proportion of the ticket price and we'll go to their work because they are actively freeing people from those situations in reality. And, you know, that is very, very important work. And as I say, I'm sorry to kind of bring the mood down. What I wanted to, if anybody, so, you know, it, you've got the book a whole month before publication. So what I was thinking was maybe if people want to speak to specific chapters, we could maybe prevail on the generosity of the Saturday group and have some chapter readings and stuff, because this is our, you know, this is our, this is, uh, as I say, I think for me, this is kind of where it all comes together, because as you know, you know, um, social justice is, is very, very important to me, uh, as is the notion that everyone you meet knows something you don't. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, coming together to talk about things that even when they are extremely difficult, um, I think it really can be a, a very powerful thing about academic cultures. So... I will leave it there because what does it say on the I haven't got my program with me. I can't so we've it. got we're going to take a break at 12.15 um, and it's just coming up to 12 now. So we've got around a quarter of an hour uh, where we could um, invite, you know, those who've got a chapter in the book, please do, you know, come forward. But I think you know, the chat has talked in such a wide way, starting from your talk around you know, basically coming from modern slavery, that has talked about social mobility in class. There's a lot of comment here. So I think if there's the authors in the room, absolutely, but but do also unmute yourself um, if you if you want to share what you've said as well, because it's it's there's such depth in, in this. Um, it, it's almost impossible. I don't know where to start actually. <laughs> there's so much coming through from people. There is always that awkward thing on Zoom when somebody speaks first and then somebody jumps in as well, but we'll just have to get through that. But um, if any of the authors in the space want to have a chat first and then we can open up a bit wider too. And, and just, so just to be clear, so the authors are, the Grundies and their oppressors by Keith Flett. There's, I've got a second chapter. If you have security, Ed, that's everything. Deconstructing security as a buffer against life challenges by Lalage Campbell. Borsetshire Businessman or Feckless Farmer by Christine Narramore. What to do when you're no longer Borsetshire's Business Person of the Year or How to Handle a Scandal by Olivia Van Dyke. Contemporary Social Problems in a Rural Setting Using the Arches and Social Work Education by Helen M. Burrows. Academic Archers Assembly, Putting the Parents on Trial by Cara Courage. Accent and Identity in Ambridge, the link between how we speak and who we are. We should have called him Damien. A discussion on the impact of Henry Archer's early years. Fear, Fecklessness and Flapjacks, Imagining Ambridge's Offenders by Charlotte Bilby. Rich Relatives or Ambridge Fairy, Patronage and Expectation in Ambridge Housing Pathways by Claire Asbury. Staying in the Spare Room, Social Connectedness and Household Co-Residence in the Archers by Paula Fomby. 
Can't Afford the Laurels, Care Provision in Ambridge in 2045 by Heilbronn and Janssen. Parents, Siblings in the Pursuit of Power, Predicting the Future Leaders of Ambridge by Timothy Versalotti, Professor. From the moment those two joined the committee, it's been grunge bags, sumo wrestlers and souffles. What does Ambridge's civil society say about UK politics? And a divided village, a narrative, use it, a narrative study using a theoretical lens of speculative ontology. I'd buy that book, wouldn't you? That sounds bloody great to me. Claire, come on, say something about housing. Oh, um, yeah, I, I think it's your point that you make in your table about the precarity of housing. Housing is the main kind of usually the main cost to a household. Um, and particularly for low income households, it's very much the main cost of a household. So the kind of the, the, the precarity of housing is one of the really key sort of elements of precarity in, in any marginalised um, people, I think. And we've obviously, my chapter's got a whole pathway around Emma Grundy, which explains the precarity. Um, but your table's really useful in that, that shows how that kind of, do you earn enough in your main normal hours job to actually secure the housing you need is at, uh, such a fundamental question to which the answer is no for very very many people mm -hmm. uh, and the solutions around that and you know at the, at the British Library I talked about the retreat of the state and the fact mm -hmm. that that you know there is a bit of buffering state buffering around that uh, but that state buffering is very significantly different now to what it was 10 20 years ago um, 30 years ago 40 years ago that um, you know that it's it's piecemeal and patchy and inconsistent and and not enough, mm. um, and that leaves people very precarious. So at the situation where, and it's quite hard to talk about this in a way that doesn't make Philip look like a good guy, which is not what I'm intending. But the idea that he saw a previous apprentice who was living rough, and then they say, said, "Well, look, I can't afford to pay you, but I'll put you up in a flat." And the, and the you know, what's the package value of that in concern? Actually, uh, somebody who's on minimum wage would struggle to afford to live in a flat, mm. even or in a shared flat, uh, or if they're on benefits. So that, that space between uh, benefit levels and minimum wages and precarious and fluctuating work means that a lot of those people who live like that will have possibly less security, certainly of housing, I'm not saying that it's right. It's all right because they're slaves. That's not right. But actually, that you know, in that that thing alone, as long as they're they're in that tied employment, they are more mm. secure in their housing than mm. lots of other people who are being paid and not slaves. So our dependence on our employer for mm. a roof above our heads is again another continuum where people sit in lots of different places around precarity and exploitation. And I think your stuff really draws that out so well. And I think, you know, the, the interaction between housing income and, and, and options is, you know, really mm -hmm. fundamental to life as well, you know, because I'm a housing person, so I make it all about housing. Um, but, you know, without that, so much else falls apart. Mm. So it's an interesting to, to, to see how that fits together, but it's not very cheerful, I'll be honest. Um, bless you. Well, thank you very much for that. Are there any other um, authors on the line who would like to say something? Um, they can uh, ch change the tone slightly. I mean, for just, just for what it's worth, I mean, that, you know, the fact that our benefit system supports low pay, you know, it exists, that's what kind of what it exists to do, because through working family tax credits, you're supporting employers to not pay people minimum wages 
which were put in as a public policy solution to low pay. So the relationship between, and again, low pay housing and kind of the esteem in which one is held. Um, and if you, once you've abandoned a, a rights-based framework, then you really are lost. Amy, you want to come in, Pet? Well, yes, um, I think it's really interesting, this notion of precarity. And um, I don't know if you, those of you that will remember me from last year may or may not remember that I was talking about the different spheres that civil society exists in Ambridge. Now, down on one side, there was the social sphere, but the other side was the political sphere of whether we can stand up and, mm -hmm. uh, and campaign when we've got issues of precarity. Now, one of the worrying things that I pointed to last year, and I said, I don't know if this is an indication of the way that things are going, but that, that whole sphere of of actually campaigning um, and in a contested way um, in the public sphere seems to be absent from Ambridge at the moment. Now, is that something to worry about? And I think that's really interesting when you consider how precarity is on the rise at the moment. Mm. And when you think about the kind of things that are being discussed politically as well. So, um, uh, at the moment, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not the National Trust were, um, were doing something wrong when they talked about um, slavery. And, uh, and there's been some criticism of the National Trust getting involved in the political sphere. Mm. So I think that actually there's a, there's a link there between your paper, Nicola, and mine in that whole question of whether or not it's okay within the civil society, whether in Ambridge or in real life, um, but of course Ambridge is real life, and, uh, um, yes, to the, the question of whether or not we have, we still have the ability to stand up and fight against precarity, which I think has mm -hmm. been eroded. I think that's right. And I think that certainly notions of solidarity, I mean, that's the point, that's the reason that when the Independent did the trailer for this and they were like, boffins get together to discuss neoliberal necropolitics, my back goes straight up because they're saying, I think that by giving these things a name, you begin that process but in so far as you don't have the words to discuss them then how can we for you know how can we say what we don't you know and modern slavery is so pernicious and so part of our you know i mean it, in fact let me just in the in the chapter the thing at the beginning says remember because because they were built because they made the decision for them not to be in the farming supply chain which is quite an interesting one i'd quite like to hear from kerry about that so by making them builders, right, and I've got this the chunk at the front of the chapter and it's, it does speak to what you're talking about, Amy. It says, construction is a bipolar industry. On the public side, we create inspirational buildings, pushing the boundaries of architecture and technology and solving ever more difficult challenge. The dark side, the systematic exploitation of millions of vulnerable workers is rarely acknowledged, even by the clients and multinationals that commission and create our shiny new cities. The sector is rife with human rights abusers, bonded labour, delayed wages, abysmal working and living conditions, withholding of passports and limitations of movement to all forms of modern slavery. The business models must take, must take a large part of the blame. The global trend towards outsourcing and cut price contracting makes it easy for main contractors to duck out of their responsibilities, arguably, right? This, these stretched supply chains, which are a key part of the outsourcing and neoliberalization playbook, and they make it invisible, right? They, they deliberately render obscure these exploitations. So the plight of the most vulnerable gets lost among the long and complex supply chains. And you're right, but the first step towards being able to, God forbid, you know, mobilize all these old words that we've forgotten, you know, have solidarity, 
you know, work together, organize. But because because it's so pernicious, it's like it's like how you know those things people have where they've got their cellar is full of so much damp the house could all fall down. My feeling now is that precarity serves to threaten the, the whole fabric of our political economy in a way that um and i just have never understood how you know in economic and political and social terms people are perfectly happy to have the benefits of capitalism but but the externalities and the disbenefits and the partial nature of prosperity is something that some people are able to push out of sight and i just don't see how that's it like in terms of like your mental capacity to understand your life how does that how is that sustainable now with 20 percent of brits in this situation so yes thank you for reminding us that there is a political and as I say, a rights-based discourse, I guess, is pointing towards a political solution. I'm not there in terms of like, I don't know that you can mobilise behind the neoliberal necropolitical. As I say, it makes people laugh in the press or whatever. But like the point is, you can't fight what you can't discuss. You can't be what you can't see, all that stuff. And without a language to describe these relationships between poverty wages, insufficient housing, precarity of housing, precarity of employment, precarity of esteem, then we really are nowhere. And sorry, I've gone off again on a run, haven't I? Anybody else want to come in? That is That's a really okay. good point. Yeah, it is a really good point. Um, Helen Burroughs, you've just, I'm not sort of asking you necessarily to defend Kirsty, but would you be happy to, to speak to what you've just put in the chat about how this session has made you rethink Kirsty's actions at the moment? Yeah, um, if I can talk sort of any, any reasonably. Um, it's just made me think that actually she is standing up for her principles and she's actually putting herself at a huge risk. She could end up in prison uh, as, with contempt of court, but as it is, she's practically homeless now anyway. Mm -hmm. If the house is taken as, as um, proceeds of crime, Where's she going to go? You know, she has started again several times. She had to start again after Tom jilted her. But she is in a position of extreme precarity. Mm. And she's putting, she's, she's principled enough to be pushing herself further to do that. And I, I just think it's, there's been a lot of criticism of her. And I think, you know, what she's doing isn't legally a very good idea at the moment because of the issues of contempt of court but bloody hell you've got to admire her for it a bit i don't know i mean i i think again like the, the downside to a structural approach it does lead you you reevaluate everybody's motives right because if this you know if the the risk of precarity is kind of the big um you know bogeyman that we've all got to avoid at all costs which is what keeps us from mobilizing for change right then you have to look at human agency in a different light right like like and and again this is where again this can become incredibly dark because how much choice so Kirsty exercised some economic choices by settling for a man 
who was, you know, solvent, had his own teeth, but wasn't exactly, you know, she was settling. So she did deals inside herself to be like, he might not be everything, but I'll go on then. And she chose security. And this is why Lalage's paper is so good. And a lot of people make decisions about their lives not based on Hallmark cards, whether or not she did it on purpose, but for her to be faffing about doing a voluntary job that wouldn't cover her rent and bills was an example of using her privilege. And that's why she feels terrible now, because she was able to faff about with the ducks rather than get a roof over her own head. And for me, what the thing that you raise, and I think that, again, I don't, you know, I don't mean to be annoying about this, you know, I'll go on about the characters all day and all night and their kind of foibles, but within the kind of jaws of neoliberal um, necropolitical kind of structural explanations, how much freedom does anybody, women, how much freedom do women have, which makes securing your economic right to exist as a woman your most important, nobody can take it from you if it's yours. You don't have to compromise who you let through your front door, who you have in your bed, you know, who's the mother of, who's the father of your kids, if you own your own front door. And I'm sorry if this is ridiculously outdated thinking, but I think it is the major, and you'll know I'm not, I know, I get it, Jackie. The point is, is that what are the range of options that we have? She says Kirsty did, did what many women do. I'm not saying that she's any unique in that, but again, let's surface this, right? Everyone deserves to be safe and everybody deserves to be able to have the life that they want, not be compromising, not be settling, not be talking themselves into it, not be, you, you know, it's, and, and there is still something in there about the, the status, you know, women and property, you know, I would always say, you know, get your, get your happy place and build out from there you know it, it's you can and, and again gentlemen apologize I just think I apologize in advance for what I'm about to say I think being dependent on another human a man for example for your security is the basis of not being free in your own head mm. and then from that point onwards women are far more precarious in general than men are because for reasons that were mentioned by the brilliant um, judge, et cetera, et cetera, they, ha they have to deal with the consequences of male violence and of um, sexual violence and of children, all of which are things which are the kind of dirty that don't wash clean, right? Sorry, I'm really, this is, this is, you know. It's okay, Nicola. We've got, I'd like to come back to Karen Pollock, if that's okay, Karen. Wake up from your knitting. Um, you said there in your, in your last comment around us, you know, or the projection, Kirsty's projection, you know, sort of solving her guilt. But I've also wondered in this, and this goes back to your previous paper, about how us as listeners, have projected or in that transference about our quite difficult or ambivalent moral position in this storyline. 
and we've, we're up to time now, but if perhaps if we could just close with that comment or your thoughts on that, Karen, and then go into the break with that. Thanks. I, I think it's, it's really complex because it, it's both what you, you just said and what Nick said, because it's easier if we think that Kirsty has full and free choice and went into the relationship with Philip eyes wide open. And I think there's a lot of transference of our own not looking behind closed doors in that whole relationship. And the choice, it's a pyramid. Yes, she's white. Yes, she's cis. Yes, she's, she has social capital. She's physically able. She has social capital. She's educated she's, to a degree. But she's still a woman who was having to make underneath patriarchy. And I think we wanted to close the curtains and shut the door and go, oh, she'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. So, so and I think, if yeah. I may, sorry, Cara, I'm just going to literally just close. The point about all this is you just can't look away. Don't, you don't have to become a fully paid up member of, uh, of, of anything, but we are all complicit in all this and just don't look away is what is all I would say. And I know it's been a bit hardcore this morning and I, and I apologize for just, you know, the bleakness, but don't look away. Thank you. And um, I've got to say that the, you know, all of the comments in the chat here has, has just been um, so, oh, they're just fantastic. And, but, you know, we're going to be also a lot of lived experience as well within this group too. Uh, we're going to break for tea now for another 15 minutes um, and we'll be back for 12.30 and we've just got a session then 12.30 to 11.15 um, and then we'll be breaking for lunch. Um, there's been a lot of uh, people recommending different reading and blogs and things like that. So during the break, I'll go into the Facebook group and I'll start a thread that people can add those um, to that thread as well as being in the chat. So there's just a little bit more sort of permanent place for them to sit. So we'll be back um, at just past 12.30. See you then. <laughs>